The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit binging your Google and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 480 with guests Jonathan Carlson, Bob Davidson, David Heckerman, and Carl Cady, recorded live Monday, August 17, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who drinks his VB net with a C-sharp chaser... Wait a minute, did I have sharp that up? Carl Franklin! Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here. Richard Campbell here. How you doing? I'm well, sir. Things are good. No rest for the wicked. Hey, show 500 is coming up. It's coming. And uh, we promise we won't do anything as bad as show 400. We'll be sober. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, show 400 was really kind of an afterthought, but for 500, we really have, uh, we have an idea. Because we're going to be in Sweden, we're going to be in Berlin, we're going to be in Las Vegas, we're going to be in Poland, we're going to be in Bulgaria, and uh, in Amsterdam, and in Los Angeles before show 500 airs. So we're going to talk to a lot of people and, um, and, and get a lot of little vignette interviews and just see what people have to say uh, about .NET and about .NET Rocks and what they're looking forward to. Also, we want to hear from you, our listeners. It's been a long time since we just had a mass call-in show. Right. So that's what we're going to do. So if you have a .NET Rocks story or a quip or uh, you know something that happened that uh, we helped you with or, or something funny, anything like that, call us and leave a message uh, and we'll play it on the show. And uh, inside the United States, you can call toll-free 877-492-6751. Outside the United States, you can call 860-447-8832. And just leave us a message, and we'll be 
sure to, you know, if it's funny and good. <laughs> if you qualify, you could be on .NET Rocks episode 500. Do you remember show 100? Show 100 was like this, but we had guests call in and leave messages. And we That's probably right. will have some guests call too. But but it was funny because we got some guests who were like, okay, Carl and Richard, start recording now. Hey, Carl and Richard. <laughs> and we played them just like that, you know, so... But uh, anyway, so let's get into Better Know Framework and start the show off. All right. So today I'm going to talk about HTTP style URI parser. Oh. Which is in system. And this inherits system.URI parser. And uh, there's a whole bunch of URI styles, of course, FTP, file, um, HTTP. HTTP, and so this one lets you parse an HTTP URI, which is essentially a URL, right? Right. The important part of the uh, URI parser base class is get components, which gets the components from a URI. So that will return, you know, the scheme, the host, the port, all the little pieces of a URI, and in this case, an HTTP URI or a URL. So there you go. So, Richard, you have an email for us? I do indeed. And this one subject line is database guarantees from a used car salesman. Hmm? Hi, guys. I just listened to show 466, and I have to support Damien's call for a database episode of .NET Rocks. Ooh. As a C-sharp developer, I use .NET Rocks to keep me informed on subjects that relate to my professional work, but which I don't have the time to investigate thoroughly. Since I don't know if I'm ever going to work with Surface, Silverlight, or SharePoint, but rely on databases every single day, I think SQL Server, or databases in general, are prime candidates for the subject of a show. I dig into the details of databases interworking so seldomly that I forget all the subtleties. Thus, I would love it if you would drill these subtleties into my brain once again. Yeah. Databases are very much about guarantees, and whenever I start thinking about these guarantees, I feel like a bad boy for relying so heavily on something that I don't quite understand. Yep. How are transactions implemented? How do transaction logs work? If used correctly, do transactions really guarantee the ACID properties? Hmm. As I would expect with the uncertainty principle in quantum physics and whatnot, there has to be a limit somewhere. Oh, quantum physics. I knew that was going to come up sooner or later. <laughs> Are distributed transactions really possible without giving up some of the asset properties to some degree? Uh, just as an aside here. The answer is no. They hmm. really are that reliable. I've done these tests, but we can uh, talk about that later. On another show. Hey, weren't uh, Kim and Paul supposed to do their own podcast on SQL Server? Supposedly. Supposedly. I don't know if I believe them. I just, every once in a while we get an email, okay, we're really serious this time, and then <laughs> we never hear from them again. Never hear from them again. They're, they're busy people. What can you they do? They are very busy people, and God bless them. Yeah. Let me finish this email. All right. Relying on these things feels very much like applying a mathematical theorem for which I've never seen the proof. For all intents and purposes, I could probably do fine without understanding the details, but it just doesn't feel right. It kind of feels like cheating. So, please, if you would find it in you to share some of your wisdom on these issues mentioned above it would be greatly appreciated love the show continues to push me to expand my skill set cheers rune ibsen from denmark cheers rune thanks rune yeah we'll send you a mug absolutely and if you got questions concerns ideas for shows things we ought to be doing or should be doing more of send us an email dot net rocks at franklins.net 
Our guests today are Jonathan Carlson, Bob Davidson, David Heckerman, Lisa Hildebrandt, and Carl Cady, who uh, are working on a very interesting project, and I'm going to just let them introduce themselves, and then we'll talk about the, the project. So who wants to take a first crack at it? Okay, well, I'll go first. This is David Heckerman. I've been a researcher at Microsoft for 17 years. I have a background both in statistics and medicine. I have an MD-PhD, uh, hence the uh, interest in uh, HIV vaccines. Okay. Uh, this is Carl Cady. I'm uh, 15 years with Microsoft. I'm a research programmer in the research division. Before that, I worked uh, on the very first version of MSN. Uh, academically, I uh, have a PhD in machine learning, uh, but when I came to Microsoft, I was uh, working just as a, a, a line software uh, developer. Then I moved to research. Okay. This is Bob Davidson, and I'm a almost 21-year veteran of Microsoft, where I've been doing internal tools for most of that time. I joined David's group uh, about six months ago uh, to work on the biology side of things and to, uh, to try and work on uh, the things like we're going to talk about today. Uh, my name is Jonathan Carlson. Uh, I'm a researcher at Microsoft Research working in the eScience group. My focus of my research is on HIV. Uh, specifically, we look at how HIV adapts to the immune system using ma- machine learning techniques. So oh, machine we, uh, learning. Yeah. We, we develop graphical models that try to uh, model how HIV adapts to the immune system. Okay. Well, um, who wants to start us off and tell us how this project got started? And, I mean, the, the goal is to find a vaccine for HIV. How did it start? Well, uh, this is David Heckerman. Uh, we were doing uh, sort of uh, straightforward applications of statistics in computer science. We were building things like spam filters and data mining tools uh, as part of Microsoft products. And uh, I, have, I have this background and this general interest in medicine. And at one point, uh, it became clear that the sort of tools we were developing might be applicable to these, uh, these very challenging problems, such as design of HIV, uh, uh, vaccine for HIV. So we, we kind of dabbled with that a bit and had a little bit of success. Uh, and uh, Bill Gates actually uh, looked at our work and was very interested in it helped us, introduced us to some folks working on uh, HIV uh, throughout the world, actually, and we started talking with them, and we realized that we could uh, help them a bit in um, uh, processing, analyzing their data, finding new interesting signals in their data to help uh, to build this HIV vaccine. So by machine learning, are you talking about neural networks or not exclusively or, or other techniques as well? Yeah, machine learning is very broad. It it, it really mean, it basically means statistics with a computational bent to it. And so there's all sorts of uh, machine learning techniques. The ones that we uh, practice the most uh, go by the uh, name graphical models. You could consider neural nets a special case. So this is a project that started at Microsoft. Yes. Wow. We're in uh, this group called uh, Microsoft Research. There's about 800 of us. Sure. Wide. And uh, there's a lot of different things, as you might guess, with 800 people working in research. There's a lot of different things we're doing, and uh, there's certainly room to uh, for some of us to think about how computer science and machine learning and statistics can help 
in the areas of uh, biology. And specifically, um, you were talking before we started recording about uh, about how HIV is a special case because it mutates so quickly. And that's one of the reasons why scientists haven't been able to nail down a vaccine. How is um, what you're working on attacking that problem? Uh, well, what we're trying to do is to figure out just how HIV mutates when it gets inside of you. It's not completely free to mutate any which way. HIV is not going to mutate into a zebra or something like that. Right. It's constrained. So we're trying to, uh, through computer science techniques and a lot of data gathered by our collaborators, uh, trying to figure out exactly what the constraints uh, on those uh, mutations are. And if we can figure that out, then we can build a vaccine that will teach our immune systems to keep one step ahead of the virus. So you're looking for patterns. And are you looking at genetic data? Absolutely. Yeah, you're looking at gene sequences and how they change, and uh, and are you also looking at the the I can imagine millions of factors that come into play uh, as as possible effectors of those mutations. Absolutely. And Jonathan, why don't you? Uh, Jonathan's been doing a lot of great work in this area in bringing in all these different factors. Jonathan. Yeah. So we're focusing on a set of human proteins, a class of proteins called the HLA proteins. Uh, and these proteins are known to help the immune system identify which cells have been infected with HIV. And the way it does that is it actually uh, recognizes, it, it binds the short sequences of HIV uh, viral protein fragments and presents those fragments to the, the immune system. And so what we're looking at is uh, if there's patterns to how HIV mutates to different versions of these HLA proteins. The idea being it is only so many combinations, and in theory, you it, once you know all those combinations, you can build something that will cover the full spectrum. Exactly. And what, one of the interesting uh, properties of these HLA proteins is that they're highly diverse in the human population. So there's maybe a, a thousand or so variations of this protein. Wow. And each person has six of these proteins. And so... For each person, there's a very uh, specific subset of HIV fragments that their immune system is even capable of targeting. Okay. And and are these the things that, that cause the virus to mutate itself? Are these the only things that cause the virus to mutate? They're certainly not the only things, and, and I want to be careful to say it's not causing the virus to mutate. The, muta- the virus mutates randomly. Randomly. And it's a question of which of those mutations are selected for in a process of natural selection. Oh, so some random mutations will be beneficial to the virus and some of them will be costly to the virus. And whether they're beneficial or costly uh, is somewhat of a function of the, vir- of the how the virus protein structures itself and somewhat a function of how that, that protein interacts with the human immune system. I see. Uh, so these HLA proteins are, are a major force of interaction between the immune system and the virus. So based on the HLA proteins that the particular person has, they would be more or less likely for the HIV virus to mutate to a specific set. Well, to, to right. be successful in a certain area. So if your HLA recognizes one and successfully attacks it and kills that variation of the HIV virus, mm. then he's, the virus there is no longer successful. So the, what the virus is trying to I do see. is to mutate where the HLA is not going to recognize it. The human side is trying to make sure that you can recognize foreign, foreign bodies and... Uh, 
and encapsulate them and present them to the, the rest of the immune system to shut it down. Oh, okay. So it's a uh, hide-and-seek game that's going on, if you will, where the, the AIDS virus, as it goes through these random mutations, is tr- trying to, and we're imputing attempt here, right? I mean, it's, right. it's more random than attempt, but is, is successful when he can hide and not be found, and he's able to more readily infect other cells and, and to reproduce itself. Yeah. Um, and that's the, that's the hide-and-seek game that's going on. Okay. Tell us a little bit about the, the machine learning process and, and how that uh, is, is helping, how that works. Sure. So the, the basic idea is to try to build a statistical model of how evolution works. Uh, and, and what we can do then is we, uh, David mentioned earlier, uh, this idea of graphical models. And the idea is that you can... Uh, draw out the patterns that you think are happening and then test statistically whether those models fit the data. So, for example, we have a model that says that HIV is randomly mutating throughout the course of of history until it infects a specific individual. And in this individual, uh, we actually get to see the players of this cat-and-mouse game, the the hide-and-seek game that Bob was talking about. And then we look for correlations in those individuals. And, and the idea then is that if we see that everybody with a certain HLA protein has a specific uh, mutation or is more likely to have a specific mutation within HIV, uh, then that is a mutation that is, is likely to uh, help HIV adapt from that particular HLA protein. So it sounds like you're working to produce more than one strain of this vaccine. It sounds like you're going to have many. Is that true? Uh, yes, absolutely. That's that's one of the challenges with HIV is uh, because it mutates so rapidly, it looks like we may have to design something that is more specific for people with specific HLA uh, uh, proteins. And so, of course, the, one of the goals is to find mutations that are common across HLA proteins or sure. across a fairly broad subset of HLA proteins. Sure. So I can imagine that you'd have a sort of a base level, if you want to say a more general vaccine, and then some more specific vaccines based on the HLAs that person has. Yeah, it's, it's too too early to tell exactly where that's going to go, but that's, that's certainly a possibility. So, I mean, in terms of just the economics of it, you would like it to be a small number as possible. Sure. And if you can have it so that there is a critical protein that you recognize that we don't recognize now, then that may be an interesting point as well. I mean, as Jonathan said, it's just there's so many opportunities still available that we're willing so much that it, it's hard to say what direction it's going to end up going. This is Carl Cady. Uh, one of the tools that we have uh, after we find some of these uh, candidate sequences is a tool called uh, Create Epitome. And with it, you give it a list of the little protein fragments and how much of the population each one covers. And then it works to try to create uh, longer and longer um, uh, sequences of protein so that it can find one that's not too long but still covers as much of the population as you can. That's kind of a straightforward computer science optimization with a little bit of a trick that we're not, we don't think we can practically cover everything. So we're trying to uh, cover as much as we can uh, as, uh, with not going too long, without making the vaccine too long. How, how far along in the process are you? This is David. Uh, we are at the stage now where we have some, what we think are, are reasonable designs for vaccines. And now we're... Um, 
I think we want to get a little bit more data and, and uh, verify those designs, but uh, there's a good chance that we'll now want to move to the next phase, which is testing, which is very tough. I was going to say, yeah. what are, are there possible side effects from from uh, from a vaccine such as this? Things yeah, that can generally, go wrong? first thing you want to test for is safety, and then once you know that things are safe, then you move on to efficacy, or sometimes you test for safety and efficacy at the same time. Uh, generally, what you do is you get volunteers who are high, at high risk of getting HIV and who are willing to uh, uh, take the vaccine, and then they get the vaccine, then you watch what happens. And that watching, of course, takes a long time. Yeah. So are... Is the, the the software you're working on also going to help on the testing side of things as well you, you, you're, as you start doing these trials? Um, when it, to analyze the results of these trials, we want to apply um, statistical methods. And occasionally, some of the fancier statistical machine learning sorts of things that we do can be helpful. But that what's, I think most of our effort is on the design side as opposed to the evaluation side. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whom this show would not exist. No doubt, you bump into testing tasks now and then in your work. And we can bet writing functional tests is not your favorite thing. It's difficult. It takes ages and the results could be dubious. Well, get ready to start liking it thanks to Telerik. With the just-launched Web AII testing framework, building web automation tests is a breeze. Enjoy code-based automation of advanced ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight apps. Write a single test and have it executed against multiple browsers at once. Benefit from rich API link support, integration with Visual Studio unit testing, NUnit, XUnit, and MBUnit, not to mention the free wrappers for Telerik RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight that ship with Telerik's new testing tool. Surely one of its best features... Web AII Testing Framework, which is developed by Art of Test, is absolutely free. If you're already hooked on Web AII Testing Framework, you can start using it right away. Go to Telerik.com for more info. And hey, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So what sort of tests are you in the process of doing that you're analyzing the data from? Is this just blood sample work from a large collection of people? Yeah, for example, uh, we, we can get people... Uh, that are infected with HIV, and we, we actually know how badly or how well their immune systems are fighting HIV, and then we can measure what parts of HIV their immune systems are attacking and look for correlations between uh, where the attacks are taking place and how well the attacks are doing. Uh, I mean, HIV has really run rampant in Africa. What's the sampling like? Are you, is, there, is there an African focus, or is this a worldwide uh, uh, research plan? We're working with collaborators around the world. We definitely, are, uh, some of those people are, are uh, working with folks uh, in Africa, South Africa in particular, around the area uh, of Durban. Uh, this is uh, uh, a collaborator, Philip Golder, Bruce Walker, uh, Philip's at uh, Oxford, Bruce is at uh, Harvard. Uh, but we're working with other collaborators as well, people uh, based in the United States, people based in Australia, um, people based in other areas of Africa. And, and just to be clear, you guys aren't actually doing the blood sample collection. You're just gathering data from all the different folks that are doing it to do the analysis? Correct. 
Okay. No, this is, as you said, a vaccine. So this is a preventative measure. Is it also, uh, can it also be effective on people who already have the virus? It may be. Uh, this is uh, an area that's very interesting to us and obviously a lot of other HIV researchers. Um, we're not sure. Uh, some of the tests that we're uh, going to be doing in the next, in the coming months will help us uh, determine that. What kind of uh, technology are you using? Um, I, I can imagine there's an, uh, maybe an OLAP cube somewhere. Uh, this is Carl Cady. Uh, some of the initial data is stored in, in uh, SQL. A lot of it comes from our collaborators just in hand-coded uh, Excel files. Huh. Most of the coding we're doing is in C-sharp, um, and we're creating new algorithms, so we're not so much using... We're using a lot of the, the .NET technology, but uh, kind of the analysis parts are the, uh, the new thing that we're, we're contributing. And so, as you can imagine, this is, this is computationally intensive as well. Right. So the, there's a lot of work that is, you know, you start on the desktop and then you need to scale out. And so we're using clusters, and then we're also uh, experimenting with some of, the, uh, some of the work on Azure and how far we can scale out. I was going to say maybe the, the peer uh, method might work really well for this, if it's pure number crunching, you know, sort of like the SETI at home model. The... Partially, the problem with that is, is we have confidential information here. Mm -hmm. And so where we can send information or we can't send information is, is somewhat problematic. Sure. Uh, this is Carl. We're fortunate to have access to uh, a 6,000-node HPC cluster. Oh. So until we outgrow that, if we <laughs> outgrow it, um, that has the convenience of just being upstairs and having right. all the machines be identical and, you know, easy to program. That's great. Only 6,000 nodes. Only 6,000. We have to share them with other projects. <laughs> <laughs> Once in a while. Can you talk a little bit about the programming side of the HPC part? Like breaking these, this sort of work up into fine pieces, is that really difficult? So the, many of the, most of the problems we're working on are what some people call embarrassingly parallel but I like mm -hmm. to think of as being delightfully parallel. <laughs> <laughs> the problems are easy, generally easy to split up into 1,000 or 10,000, or last week I was running something I'd split up into 100,000 parts. Mm. And the program knows that it, the work is in 100,000 parts, and it knows it's supposed to do part, say, 220. And then it just writes its output, which on a lot of these uh, programs is a single text line for uh, each of the uh, work items, which there might be, a, the total work might be in the millions or up to a billion. And then there's one, usually one final pass we call tabulation that we can do on a desktop. Which is really sort of the synthesizing of all those different units back together again? Right. Uh, a lot of times each line represents one statistical test. But because we're literally doing millions or perhaps a billion statistical tests, the chance of having coincidental results is very high. So that last step is to try to find out what's likely to be really significant and not just apparently significant. That, that sounds like a fairly specific scientific terminology, too, apparently, versus really. 
<laughs> yeah, typical scientific tests say something is significant if there's only five chances in a hundred that it happened by chance. Right. But of course, if you're testing a million hypotheses, um, that's a lot of things that are going to be said to be significant. And a lot of our results go back to the lab uh, where they can be tested, and we really don't want to give them 50,000 um, things to test. In the end, the service you're providing here more than anything is to cull down the sheer volume of data into something that's relevant, that they'll be testing the things that matter. That's correct. A lot of our results will say, here's a list of 100, uh, say, these little protein segments that we think are um, would be useful for vaccine. Of this 100, we think half of them well, are, are real. We can't tell you which half, but a hundred's not that many, and you can go test it in the test tube. Right. Yeah. And this is about doing using computers to cut down the amount of test tube time. Exactly. Uh, am I reading this correctly? Are all the tools that you're working with here essentially available online? The, the computational biology tools are on CodePlex? Uh, that's correct. Uh, the we have internal versions, so not everything is up to up to the minute online. But basically, when a scientific paper is published about the work, then the uh, code is open sourced and put on CodePlex. And we'll often try to make a web version or a Silverlight version available too. Wow! Yeah, I'll say. Yeah, just, just sharing all this information. And you've also been working on uh, malaria and Hep C as well. Yeah, the problem with Hep C is very similar to uh, HIV. Uh, hep C is a virus; it mutates very rapidly, about as rapidly as HIV, and it's not as lethal as uh, HIV, but it certainly causes a lot of problems. And it's uh, it's not as prevalent as HIV, but it certainly uh, ha- uh, infects a lot of people. It, it did seem to me, and, and maybe this is just false memory, that the two ailments sort of popped up around the same time in the 80s. Uh, HIV definitely uh, got started uh, in early 80s. Uh, I, I don't remember when hepatitis C was, uh, uh, you know, was coming, on the, uh, coming out, but uh, if, if your memory says it was early 80s, then that's quite possible. I, d- I don't know that they're related they're fairly very very different uh, viruses, uh, so I don't think there's any uh, correlation there or, or that interesting that they have similar uh, mutation behavior. I mean, is that a very common behavior? Uh, no, uh, these viruses. Uh, there's only a handful of these viruses that mutate like this. Fairly rare. Is is this being done? Like, has this been done before? This particular type of analysis that you're doing and having so much success with? And if not, why not? Is it a matter of funding? Is it a matter of smarts or technology? Or uh, I think it's uh, it's been about, what, uh, 25 years since uh, HIV vaccine research really kicked into gear. And originally people thought, well, it's a vaccine. You know, we'll, we'll go, go with the various standard techniques for building a vaccine. And uh, it just takes a lot of time to exhaust the, the low-hanging fruit. And so okay. now we're at this stage where people are going, huh, the, you know, the, all the ways that people have tried to build a vaccine in the past are just not working. We've got to get creative here. And so this is, we're, we're part of this wave where 
people are trying some very unusual things to develop a, a vaccine. Yeah. And, and then there is the computational issue. I mean, uh, we really do use these 6,000 nodes. We, uh, 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 unfortunately, use a lot of electrical power uh, to solve these problems, and uh, this computational power just hasn't been around that long. I mean, as, as an example, one of the problems we were working on a couple of weeks ago, that Carl did a really good job of optimizing. Our, our initial estimates were 100, uh, 100 years of computation time. Yep, that's um, right. And Carl was able to improve it, but even so, we got it down on the cluster, uh, and it was still you know, a week's worth of, of running on the cluster after much optimization on his part. And again, the cluster is not small. You got from 100 years to a couple of weeks, so don't be too upset. Yeah. Well, we we went from 100 CPU years to 14 CPU years, which on 1,000 processors took uh, just under a week to oh, run. Nice. Wow. Uh, I think one of the things that has changed is statisticians always kind of knew of the idea of some of the techniques we're using, but they thought of them as kind of, uh, not practical because like one thing we do to control randomness is we just run a many, many cases that we know are random just to test them against the cases that we're hoping aren't random. So people always knew that would kind of work theoretically, but everyone thought that was just kind of a crazy waste of computation. Um, but times have changed and now it's a sensible uh, use of computation. Well, and the fact is we have, a lot of horsepower to use and pretty good tools to utilize it. I think one of the things that, that this points out is that when, when you have statistics that started off because you didn't have the computational power, you need to do clever tricks to not measure something. When the computational power increases and your data awareness and your data collection and your data gathering power increases, statistics are there to validate things, but you can start to measure things and you can start to really count things when you do this. So uh, as more and more power comes online, more and more uh, direct measurement, if you look at environment and other places where people are measuring impacts, the number of data points that you've got to look at, you can count. And now you want to infer and get statistics out of all that raw data. There's going to be a ton of cool uh, heavy-duty computational problems coming at us. Let me ask you this. Are you guys using Link or are you using any sort of functional programming languages, F-sharp, perhaps? Uh, yeah, this is Carl. We're using C-sharp, and within C-sharp, as soon as Link became available, we switched over to it in a lot of places, and a lot of the new code uses it even more. Um, a lot of our code has does what Link does. It enumerates some things, maybe some um, one batch of things, and inside that, another batch. It might do some selection. Um, sometimes it does grouping. And a lot of times, one thing pipelines into another. So uh, Link has been a very nice way to uh, express some of the algorithms. How about on the functional programming side? Uh, we haven't been doing functional programming beyond what is convenient to do in C Sharp. Link and mm -hmm. passing uh, Lambda expressions um, and that sort of thing. Uh, that's worked out pretty well for us. It, gives us a nice language to code quickly in, mm -hmm. C-sharp. And by making parts of the code functional, it, does, it makes it easier to run things on multiple processors on one machine, yeah. which is a nice 
thing to do if you're waiting for your results to come back. P-Link also? Uh, exactly. We're using the, uh, the parallel extension library in P-Link uh, to run on typically eight processors when we're running on our desktop. And it's very nice to get the results back in um, 10 or 12 minutes instead of in an hour. <laughs> that's great. I mean, and, and this does lead to one thing that's not directly related here, but the, the work that we're doing within the group here, we're also leveraging... Uh, and there's not an announcement yet, but the uh, um, the Microsoft Biology Foundation, we will have another library of code that people can use to take this code and use it more easily. So even though we have open source the original uh, solutions that we've come up with, there's a lot of people that want to do a lot more exploration and ask lots more questions. And having a library there for them to do the manipulation and to do the, the data interrogation um, is is on our roadmap. It also seems to me that you're really exercising these uh, concepts of massive parallel computing. So no matter what project's working on going forward, this is great code to reference on how to parallelize work. Yes. Um, for these kind of jobs that start on the desktop and then you want to move to the cluster, right. um, we've developed our own libraries that work on top of the HPC uh, libraries that make it especially convenient to just kind of add a flag and it runs on the desktop and then you still have to copy your results back. But we've been automating more and more of the process and within our own tools, we've been finding that we're uh, kind of gaining leverage by having a shared, uh, a library we're using among all our tools and those become available as we put things on CodePlex. So really it's about, there's a big difference between running on eight cores and running on 6,000, right? And you're trying to make that fairly transparent? Well, I just want to make sure, as Carl said, we're working with a lot of very delightfully uh, parallel programs. So, again, we run the same program across different subsets of the data across those nodes. So to run on the desktop or to run on the node in a cluster, we actually run the same code for 99% of the code. Um, when we start looking at, I want to really exploit parallelization in non-embarrassingly parable or non-delightfully parallel situations, then we're going to have a harder time just like everybody else. Writing, writing good, efficient parallel code that makes efficient use of computation, communication, and storage is still a, a hard problem in, uh, in many spaces. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. So then we started pulling this concept of Azure. Now that you're starting to feel like 6,000 nodes is a bit tight, you think the Azure guys can give you more room? Yes. <laughs> uh, we actually have an Azure implementation of the code up and running uh, right now. Uh, it's not scaled out as far as we have with the cluster. Uh, we see slightly different behaviors when you design a cluster. You design a cluster for high-throughput, high-performance, so we use bleeding-edge processors. Um, we have good I.O. We have high-speed interconnect. 
when you design Azure for massive scale out and you know power management, you don't use necessarily the latest and greatest Intel processor. Uh, so you see slight different performance characteristics on the individual node basis, but you have much more opportunity to scale up. So uh, it's it's a uh, it's really interesting as I look at the differences between the two and how they how they play together. But uh, yeah, we we expect to scale up to Azure as well. Yeah, yeah. Big thing. The, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but these HPC machines they have these really high speed in connections between the machines. So that you, you literally like bus level speeds machine from machine to machine, eh? backplane. Well, we, we we're yeah. Some machines do the the cluster that we're on is not uh, you know fiber channel everywhere to you know backplane blackplane, uh, but we do have high speed uh, networking. It's all co located. You're not going through lots of switches, uh, so it, it's all sitting there in in one lab. Again, for for our situation, we're not communications uh, bound. Uh, right. Okay. Um, we take a little bit of data from the data set on on each node. We process it. Uh, we crunch, 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 and then we write a little bit of data out that we then go back and validate and summarize and say, here are the interesting points. So you're spending more time crunching numbers than you are trans- transmitting data back and forth. Correct. One uh, interesting thing that we think Azure will give us is not just uh, scaling up with more processors like we get with the HPC, but also making it, we're hoping it'll make it much more convenient to have multiple users. Uh, Right now, when we want to run a collaborator's uh, job, they end up mailing or FTPing the uh, data set to us, and we have to go through some manual steps to run the job for them and send the results back. So we think just the bookkeeping, we're hoping, will be so much easier on Azure where, you know, perhaps people can be given their own accounts and just uh, their own computational resources. Well, and yeah, and you use what you need. Because really, a, a cluster is just a big desktop computer that one person owns, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the great thing about being in the cloud is all of that doesn't matter now. You just harness what you need when you need it. And in theory, based on the size of the set, you could literally decide, I need this ready in a day, I need it ready in a week, I need it ready in an hour, and you scale accordingly. Yeah, the cost model, the value model, all all that comes to play in what's possible. And I don't think we have the answers to those questions yet of what makes the most sense, but we're definitely experimenting with what what it looks like in Azure and and how does it play if you really want an answer quickly. You know, have you pre-provisioned all your machines? How do you do it? Uh, as you look at where they are geographically, you still have to move. I mean, there's still data that has to be moved. It's just not completely critical path to everything else that has to happen. Right. Yeah, and you're not emailing it to you anymore, so that's good. Yep. If we can, if we can have the the customer do the self service aspect of it, and and you know, it, it still is cleaning up some interfaces. As, as with a lot of research code, there's a difference between research and production, but we're dealing here with mostly researchers. So if you look at the difference between uh, um, you know, what is available already and, and what's going on, there's, there's a different level, expectation level on what the polish is. So right. I think we're in pretty good shape. Well, and it's also a difference between building an app for a particular project and building it for lots of people's projects. Yeah, it, it's uh, if you have one customer, 
and they are, or you have a lot of customers, they're all trying to solve the same thing, you can try and standardize it and, and you can make it move forward versus there's one guy and his data comes in this way and he's the only guy that's ever going to run it, then who, who does the customization? So do you guys have any guesses as to, uh, as to when you think you may have um, an effective vaccine ready? When we will have dispatched AIDS? Yes. Guess? Friday. Big swag. <laughs> yeah, I get it. <laughs> Moo. I have no idea which Friday, but Friday. So yeah. It'll be a Friday for sure. It'll definitely be a Friday. <laughs> definitely the rate limiting step is the testing. Yeah. Yeah, well, in, you know, in some ways, we're not even at the hard part yet, right? Once they make a vaccine, then actually proving it works, that's not easy. Right, because of the waiting. Yeah, there's, there's just time involved in that. The way you don't prove a vaccine works is you give people the vaccine, and then you give them HIV. <laughs> that's not a good way to test a vaccine. Not a good way, no. no. Well, it's not a good way, and you can't really use the law of numbers here either. You can't go give the vaccine to thousands until you do the uh, safety testing first. So yeah, right. There, there are steps that have to be followed that just will take time. Yeah, no two ways around it. Well, it's great, though, that you've taken such great steps. I mean, uh, what can I say? There are millions of people out there who are thanking you. We hope. Uh, other projects? I mean, I know you're taking on a good one here, but i got to think there's some other things in that, that this could be applied to. David? Uh, well, certainly uh, hepatitis C, uh, and, and it is being applied to hepatitis C. Um, those are the two big challenges. Uh, the, one other possible area of application is uh, it turns out that, at least uh, in South Africa, uh, the main disease that, or the disease that's most likely to kill you once you get HIV is tuberculosis. Uh, it's, the the uh, infection is rampant down there, and when your immune system is weakened by HIV, uh, it's much easier to... Uh, uh, be killed by that disease. So uh, one of our collaborators, Bruce Walker, is just now setting up a whole new lab down there in uh, South Africa, uh, and we uh, hope to collaborate with him on that project as well. Excellent. And yeah, TB sounds like it's under control, except it really isn't, right? If if you're otherwise healthy, uh, there's drugs, uh, uh, and if you get the normal kind of TB, there's drugs that uh, can take care of it. But down where there's a lot of infection and uh, weakened immune systems, uh, these bad forms of TB have cropped up uh, that um, are much more likely to kill you, even if you, even if you get treated. Well, we're uh, coming up on the end of the show. Is there any last-minute things that you guys want to say before we sign off? .NET rocks. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and it may cure AIDS someday. That's great. Thank you guys for the great work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a great day. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. 
online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 